Welcome to the Health Design Podcast. Here's your host, Moyes Jiwa. My guest on the podcast this week is Becky Sansbury. Her training prepared her to serve as a hospice and palliative care chaplain. She translated that experience into palliative care for all people all the time. Here to share her story and her perspective on healthcare is Becky Sansbury. Becky, you're very welcome to this call. I'm absolutely thrilled to have been introduced to you and having the time to spend with you. So welcome. Thank you so much, Moyes. You set the tone beautifully and you're right. This is a time to be treasured. I want to start with something that you said that really resonated with me and with many of our listeners. You talk about service and you say that you trained to serve in, hosp- in hospice care and palliative care. That's not something that we hear very often, the idea of service. Do you want to talk a little bit about what that means for you? I think where that whole concept of service came to me most clearly was actually in a time of medical crisis. The irony was I didn't know I was in crisis. I had gone to my family physician for a standard checkup around five or six months in the midst of a very normal pregnancy. In fact, it was so normal, I went to the appointment by myself. What I did not realize was that the child had died within me and I had given, my body had given no signal that this had happened. My very kind small town physician, when he realized what had happened, stood by the examining table and said to me, Becky, I am so sorry. The baby has died. Do you want me to call your husband to come be with you? What did that take of time for him to say that? Maybe 20 seconds at the most? A year later, in the midst of a second very normal pregnancy, I had just a tiny bit of spotting, thought that I would take a very proactive approach and drove immediately, my husband and I drove immediately back to the doctor's office. Our doctor was on vacation and a substitute fully qualified physician was right there. After he examined me, he said, well, get dressed. You can come into my office. Okay. Went to the office and he said, well, the same things happened again. You can come back next week and see your doctor. It took almost the same amount of time to share that information But what happened between those two exchanges, to me, was exemplary of what service is about as we care for human beings. And that set the tone for what ended up becoming life work for me in the care of human beings and in the service. And mine happens to be in the the arena of spiritual care in the medical community. Well, first of all, I'm extremely sorry that this happened to you not once but twice, but I'm also very sorry about particularly that second experience. What do you think it was about that individual that potentially led to this? I mean, this is not a bad person. This is somebody who is trying to... Was not a bad person, Mm -hmm. did not do anything unethical, was very appropriate, 
gave accurate medical information, was never overtly rude to me. Several things I realized years later in analyzing this was, first of all, there was never any interest or time spent, even in a sentence or two, to get to know me, to ask a question. I'm sure he saw in my chart, obviously, that I had experienced a miscarriage the year before because he said, well, it's happened again. So he knew that much. But I, in my heart of hearts, I think he was just uh, uncomfortable and didn't know how to broach a painful topic. And I think so often, Moy, is this is where people find themselves, whether they're healthcare professionals, whether they are well-intentioned family members or other support people, that the whole role of being professional, of doing it right, somehow supersedes that basic compelling motion for all of us to simply be human to each other. And I think when we can step back into our own humanity and even to say, I'm, I'm sorry, I don't know how to say this well, or I don't know how to make this comforting, I, this, uh, to say something that indicates there's something between us as human beings in addition to I'm a professional trained in this area of medicine or other care, clinical care, and I'm going to either provide you with information I'm going to suggest a service. I'm going to suggest something that you may need to do that you don't want to do. Any of those are possibilities. The first doctor met me right where I was physically, <laughs> in addition to emotionally. The second doctor asked me to come to his turf, his place. He looked up from his desk and then said something. And then, again, just the obvious humanity and the choice of words, the tone of voice. But I think if we really step back to the core of it, it's not about good people and bad people. I think it's about where we are trained or where we naturally find our places of comfort. And this word comfort has become really an overarching principle as I've experienced observed and hopefully been able to share clinical care, expertise, information, whatever it may be. Because ultimately, when we are made to feel any aspect of more comfortable, we can do what we're called on to do in much of a better way. I'm wondering, can this be taught? Because those of us who are health practitioners and are teaching future health practitioners need to really grasp this. Can Dr. One's approach be taught to somebody who may not be, as you say, comfortable in the guise of the comforter, which is the job that they had to do the second time around? Right. I believe that it can, and I'm seeing that it is being done. There are certainly medical schools where I think, first of all, the whole arena of improved communication got tapped into from a, a liability and a money status when hospitals were engaged in the process of patient feedback. They suddenly started realizing that it affected their ratings and it affected where all of that went with 
how their customers, their, their patients, saw their, their care. And then often that translated into specific medical practices. It's been shown that when patients experience a connection with their medical providers, the option of malpractice and liability suits decreases dramatically. So suddenly insurance companies thought it was a real good idea to make sure that clinicians could talk appropriately and in a way that patients could hear it and feel like they were still being treated like human beings. But yes, medical schools are doing this and there are specialists who come in to do role play situations with medical students and also in continuing education. I don't know from school to school how much that's a requirement, how much it's considered still extra or fluffy or nice or soft. I'm sure that varies from institution to institution. One of the things that I think is slowly helping is the normalization of understanding of what palliative care really is and a lot of cross-training. And so that human factor is the core uh, when you look at the broad spectrum of what all palliative care covers. The sad thing is definitely among the public, and I think still somewhat in the medical profession, it's seen as one phrase, hospice and palliative care, as if it's one phrase only. And palliative care has gotten lumped into only end-of-life care, with the assumption being, if we can't cure you, then we will make you comfortable. Well, there's, a, there's definitely the whole piece that we don't have time to get into of healing and curing and, and, you know, and I'm not taking a thing away from hospice. I love hospice. I spent years working in that arena specifically. But when I realized that palliative care, that aspect of looking at the whole human being and what could help them function best was not limited to the arena where curative treatment was no longer being sought the light bulbs went off. And I realized it doesn't matter what your physical situation is, that this is an overarching approach to make every treatment better. And now I know, particularly in the arena of oncology, there are plenty of places where as soon as you receive a cancer diagnosis, there is a palliative care specialist assigned to your team as a starting point for whatever will happen in your treatment process. And then it gets looked at from a physical, an emotional, a sociological, a spiritual approach that brings all of those pieces together. And that should be the case regardless of what a person's diagnosis is or what their plan of care is laid out to be. It just makes sense because people do better that way. The Health Design Podcast is hosted by the Journal of Health Design, an alliance with unfixed media and mental health. I certainly see the value of having somebody with those superb communication skills being involved in your care right from the very beginning. And you're right, right. insurance companies and others have recognized that the risk of litigation is much higher for those doctors who don't behave in an appropriate way. 
unfortunately, it has created the McDonald's style of have a nice day, <laughs> fatuous <laughs> comment, which doesn't really cut it. This, that wouldn't have no. helped in the situation you were in. You needed no. some yeah. genuine, real engagement with right. you to mm-hmm. recognize the very horrible, difficult situation that you were in and Correct. to make sure that you were supported. You've talked about all good care being palliative care, and you've touched on that in the last mm-hmm. few minutes. Mm-hmm. So talk a little bit more about that. It's not just about having the nice doctor on the team, is it? It's about mm-hmm. the team having a palliative care approach. So, so explore Absolutely. that with me. I think there are several things at play here, and that's such an insightful question to go with Moyes. First of all, I think one of the things that may be offsetting is that concern that uh, we can't have kindness along with truth or the difficult truths. And so often I've found that, at least as I interacted with medical personnel when I was doing hospital chaplaincy, before I was in hospice chaplaincy, was that there was, I think, a a mindset that the only way you can deal with truthful information is in that stereotypical, no-nonsense, give the information, put it out there, and that's it. And that one would not allow for the other. But if we go back to the wisdom of the ancients, the the guidance is that kindness and truth can indeed be aligned with each other. And uh, one of the the ancient writings says that we should write it on the tablet of our heart so that it's so ingrained in us that they can and do go together. So I think often the the guidance has been that you have to be one or the other in, in medical care. Where this will change is, I think it's going back to not just the profit motive, but as it becomes just like this, a topic of a conversation that medical people may be hearing, medical people who are working with curricula, medical people who are deciding on faculty for med schools or for continuing education programs, and where it is being modeled for younger clinicians that not only is this a nice thing to do, that if you want to be a really effective clinician, this is the way to get it done. And I'm not into fake it until you make it, but I think there are certainly ways that when we set a preset for a mindset, then it becomes a pattern of being and doing. And less like, I have to practice and, no, I have to be something different from who I am. It may involve practice. And you were asking earlier, how how does this come about? That it becomes more of the norm of particularly medical care. I think it becomes the norm on several things. When those who are making policy, curriculum choices, setting the agendas for major conferences do have the mindset themselves that this is important. And when they choose to seek out those speakers, teachers, esteemed physicians or educators or researchers, and they fall in this lot too, 
that if we have a choice between A or B, and they're both credentialed extremely equally, then let's go with the one who models this way of speaking and being and relating. And then the second part is, and then let's make sure our clinicians understand that the most effective clinical care is when they talk to their colleagues in a cross-discipline fashion. I think the siloing of care, medical care, as it has increased and increased and increased, and I'm not against specialization. It's crucially important. I've done a lot of work in the rare disease world. And where would we be without those specialists? But if we're not talking to each other, then there's no way to tie together the threads of a patient's life, a patient's health, their perspectives, their philosophies, anything that would affect their physical response to the treatment that I'm either prescribing, the treatment that I'm administering, or the the treatment that I suggest they seek out with another medical professional. And so as we put these elements together, I think one of the things I have found that it may be a bit simplistic As one of my colleagues said when I presented this idea, well, that's not rocket science. And I said, thank goodness, because when we are in stressed situations, when we are in traumatic situations, or when, as good clinicians, we're feeling pressed for time, because we're told you have 15 minutes, you have 20 minutes, you have to get this done, you have to dictate your notes, you have to do your electronic health records, et cetera. I understand that that's an extra pressure. So in respect to that, one of the things that I've put together to help any of us, professionals or, 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 you know, those who are not professionals, to remember that comfort involves three other pieces, and that is control. And is there any way in which the patient can be involved in the control of this situation? community, who is surrounding this patient, whether it's in a hospital setting, whether it's from their family, whether it's from those pieces of their life outside the hospital. One question, you know, who, who's around you? Who's, who's part of your community? Would instantly create an awareness that could be helpful. And then finally, where does that patient connect to something bigger or greater than themselves that would either help to ease conversation or build that rapport so you could approach difficult conversations that had yet to come. When I was in my active hospice days, the one of the things I did, and this will date me, was I read the newspaper every morning, the sports page. And it was literally the hard copy sports page and my cup of coffee before I walked out the door. And the reason I did that was as a female spiritual care provider, when I would walk into the home of a male patient who might have already been a little put off because he might have been expecting, if they'd asked for the chaplain to come by, they might have been expecting a six foot tall man with silver gray hair and a voice much different from mine. So when a five-foot-tall, obviously female, came to the door, that was already a bit jarring. But if I could sit down and know something about the local college basketball team 
or the professional sports teams that happen to be in the area and just create that two-sentence conversation. It was amazing what happened after that. So I'm not suggesting that physicians have time to get into big areas of, of gab or whatever, but one or two questions, one or two connections that they observe. One of the things I see done brilliantly in some hospitals is whether it's on the patient's chart, at the foot of the bed, at the head of the bed, just some information, human being information about that patient to give those clinicians a break. So they don't even have to ask all the questions. They've got some information fed right to them and it's there and they just need to take a sentence or two to use it. The Journal of Health Design, fostering collaboration, amplifying the voice of health advocates, growing a network to improve outcomes in healthcare. I want to pivot now and look in the opposite direction at, okay. at clinicians, at healthcare professionals okay. who are under increasing amount of pressure, who have to deliver on the EMRs and all the other things that you've mentioned, making sure the codes are right and that they're claiming the, the correct fees and all the rest of it, all in the name of the business of medicine. And increasingly, those people are also victims of a system that is chewing them up. What's your perspective on that? And what can we do to help them to serve us better? Absolutely. And, and my heart aches for exactly what you're talking about. And I think it was already in place. And by the time we hit the global pandemic, it just skyrocketed and made clear a problem that was already there. You know, it's interesting, in the past I have used in my work the term resilience, and I felt good about it. And I've stopped using it because that word has been abused by bad systems trying to drain the last drop of any, anything out of a, a physician or a clinician or a healthcare provider. And, and so it has affected many things. Let me give you an example of a way that the actual humanizing of patient care has that reverse effect of tending to that good spirit that's within overworked clinicians. There is a, a brilliant work uh, called the Three Wishes Project, and it right now is connected with end-of-life care. And it's finding ways, particularly in, in a hospital setting or other places, but I'm most familiar with it in, in a hospital setting, where they, they, um, the staff finds things that are significant to that patient to help them in their final days. And so it's whether it's having a, a, a birthday celebration or having a, some sort of a little ceremony that's meaningful they're finding something that would bring joy to that patient or finding something, knowing enough about the patient that after the patient has died, giving the family a gift that bears something from that patient. Fingerprints. Sounds, they, they do an amazing thing where they can record the sound of a patient's heartbeat 
and then put the recording of that into something tangible for that family. But the significant thing that I see beyond this to answer your question about clinicians is that they're finding now that the clinicians who are working in these very difficult circumstances and have to do all the things that you just enumerated are finding their own psyche and spirit being nurtured and refreshed and addressing that very burnout that that you spoke of. I think the interesting thing, Moy, is as we find ways to touch the spirit and the psyche and the emotions of our patients, it's circular and it comes back to feed us. I think you've hit on the very message that I'm hearing in all that you've said and in the work that you talk about. And that is that service is of itself something that has a reward that, as you say, has a circular motion. Mm-hmm. Yes. It's a very hard One thing of- to sell to a young 20-something-year-old who's going into medical school who wants to save the world. The concept that you are doing this in order to be a servant leader, what would you say to my final year medical students as the last thing before they qualify? I would first ask them how they envision success. And then I would ask them, even from their perspective before they launch into a full medical career, of what they do for their own self-care because we don't and I don't think in general we don't include that as part of how any clinician will be successful the other thing I think would be helpful would be to give them examples of physicians who themselves have encountered great difficulty Uh, who have perhaps been gravely ill themselves, who have had their world upended, and because of that, have either written or spoken eloquently about how that affected their work as a healer, as a physician, or whatever type of clinician it might be. I'm thinking of the work of uh, Dr. Raina Oddish, who wrote In Shock, And just the complete turnaround of the way she has approached medicine, but also knowing she's got to take care of herself. Uh, Dr. David Fagenbaum, uh, who wrote Chasing My Cure. Again, how all of this within his own life and yet skilled physicians, a researcher, esteemed faculty members have realized this is this is the heart of what it's all about. Recently, I did a little bit of writing for an initiative out of Johns Hopkins Medical School called uh, Closler, and it's for C.L. Osler, uh, and that excellence in medical care. And when we realize, because people that we admire realize that this is the art of medicine, which is indeed combined with the science of it, but the success of being a great clinician 
and of providing great care is more than physically stitching up a wound or zeroing in on the right immunotherapy or prescribing the right medication. As crucially important as all of those are, if the human being on both ends of that equation, the giver and the receiver, are not cared for and satisfied and find a place to meet, then we've got disruption. And disruption does not lead to success. The message is very clear that it's not just about you being a servant, it's about you being the recipient of that service, the rewards of that service, which are innate. And that's a very hard message for people to understand, that as you give, so you receive. That is so true. And it's true in medicine as it is in all parts of life. Becky Sansbury, it's been a joy spending time with you, a great deal of wisdom in all that you've shared with us. Thank you very, very much. Thank you so much, Moyes. It's been a privilege for me too. The Health Design Podcast, serving patient and physician advocates. Visit us at journalofhealthdesign.com.